this evening with our studies in the Gospel of Matthew. And tonight we pick up in the middle of the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 16. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So, Father, now as we consider the words of your Son, help us to come to him by listening to and heeding and believing his word. We ask in his name. Amen. Now there are very simply three things I would like you to notice in this passage this evening. Number one, hard hearts. Number two, opened hearts. And number three, invited hearts. Hard hearts, opened hearts, and invited hearts. And we'll begin straight away with hard hearts in verses 16 through 24. And I think you'll agree with me that this is what Jesus is describing here in these first nine verses of our passage this evening. Hard hearts, stony hearts, hearts that are stout against the gospel and against the Son of God. Because notice in verses 16 through 19, first of all, notice that they would accept neither the challenging aspects of the gospel nor its sweetness. 
This generation would accept neither the self-denial of kingdom living nor its joy. This generation in which Jesus was ministering, he says, was like a group of malcontent children, like a group of pouting little boys and girls who just refused to be satisfied. All the parents have gathered for the town's market day, and the children, in verse 16, have come tagging along, and maybe they gather in some little open space in the market, some little place where they can do kid stuff while mom and dad are off doing their shopping. But some of the children, verse 17, are just in a foul mood because when a couple of their friends stand up on little chairs perhaps and play happy songs on the flute, these powders won't dance. And then when some of their other friends join together to sing a dirge, to sing a lament, to sing a sad song, their sulking little friends won't join in that either. They're discontent either way. And so it was, Jesus says, with many of his contemporaries. No matter the soundtrack that played beneath the inbreaking of Christ's kingdom, whether it be the rippling, jovial music of a flute, or whether the music be a call to repentance and self-denial sung in a minor key, no matter the soundtrack, some people were going to be unhappy either way as Christ's kingdom broke into the world. Their hearts were hard, discontent, malcontent. For You may remember John the Baptist's calling was to come and proclaim repentance. And when he came, verse 18, with an austerity of lifestyle that matched his message, the people that Jesus refers to here chalked it up to demon possession. That John, he's too ascetic. He must have a demon. That's why he acts so bizarre. But then, verse 19, when Jesus came without the austerity, when Jesus came, for instance, turning water into wine and banqueting with Matthew, the tax collector, and his friends, they didn't like that either. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, as Jesus indicates at the end of verse 19, these deeds, the austerity of John and the eating and drinking of Jesus, these deeds were done out of these two men's wisdom. John's austerity was wise given that his message was a message of repentance. And Jesus eating and drinking and doing so with sinners was also wise given that he came to be a physician not for the healthy but for the sick. And given that the news of his kingdom was good news of great joy, of course he was going to eat and drink and do so with sinners. And so these opposite sorts of deeds, the deeds of Jesus and the deeds of John, each of them in their own proper place, these opposite sorts of deeds, rather than proving Jesus and John to be extreme, actually vindicate that they are wise. But many people Jesus says, couldn't be happy either way. They refused to accept the inbreaking of his kingdom, no matter whether it presented itself in its more challenging aspects or in its announcement of joy. <coughs> no matter whether it called for self-denial or held out the wine of gladness to them. They just weren't going to be happy either way. And oh, how we need to be warned about this ourselves. We need to beware that we do not become so hard-hearted 
so smug and pharisaical, perhaps, so spiritually jaded, perhaps, so discontent or so lukewarm that we actually close ourselves off from the life of the kingdom, that we can accept neither its invitation to joy nor its challenging calls to repentance and self-denial. Beware of becoming the kind of person who sits through a challenging sermon, a sermon that calls for repentance, a sermon that calls for sacrifice, a sermon that points out our laziness or our lack or our self-absorption or what have you. Beware of becoming the kind of person who chalks that kind of sermon up to the preacher just being fanatical, but then who turns around and calls him over the top the very next week when he extols the joys of the kingdom. I'm not saying that out of any experience of my own. I'm just warning you, beware that you're not unhappy no matter what the kingdom calls you to do or no matter what it presents you to have. Beware of becoming the kind of person for whom the lifestyle of the kingdom is always under critique. It's always either too austere and too demanding or it's too jovial and too glad. It can happen to us, can't it? For while sometimes God's people can carry things too far in one direction or the other, to be sure, yet if we are always offering these kinds of critiques, chances are that the problem is with ourselves and not with the Christians around us. Chances are our hearts have become so hard that both the self-denial of the kingdom and the joy of the kingdom have become foreign to us. And thus, when we are presented with one or the other, we are either confounded by them at best or perhaps even alarmed to see these fruits blossoming in the lives of other people. Beware of such a hardening of your heart. Beware of becoming lukewarm or discontent, or smug in your Christianity. And then beware also the kind of hardness that Jesus describes in verses 20 through 24, where he speaks to three cities which had witnessed many of his miracles, verse 20, but whose inhabitants did not repent. So here were people in Chorazin, in Bethsaida, and in Capernaum, who, like John the Baptist's disciples earlier in this chapter, here were people who had plenty of evidence in the miracles of Jesus that this Jesus was indeed the expected one, the Messiah, the Christ. And having such evidence, seeing the lame walk, seeing the blind receive sight, seeing the dead raised up, the people of these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, should have repented and turned to this Messiah in faith. For, says Jesus, had the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon witnessed such miracles, verse 21, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And verse 23, had the ancient and wicked city of Sodom, the city on which God rained fire and brimstone, had Sodom seen such miracles as these, it would have remained to this day. The people there would have repented, in other words, like the inhabitants, of, the inhabitants of Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah, and the city would not have been destroyed. And thus, while the day of judgment, in verses 22 and 24, will be terrible, 
for the unbelieving people in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. It will be worse, Jesus says, for the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum who had greater gospel light and who rejected it. And we need to hear this warning as well. We who have greater light than so many people in the world today. We who are witnesses to the things of God up close and personal to the miracle working power of Christ. We may not have seen as many miracles in the physical realm as did the people in the towns of Galilee during the earthly ministry of Christ, but those of us who are frequently among God's people, which is all of us in the room tonight, those of us who are frequently among the people of God are witnesses Are we not of Christ making the blind to see spiritually? Of Christ causing the dead to rise spiritually? Of Christ changing hearts, in other words, which is the greatest miracle of all? And so if we sit as witnesses of the mighty works of Christ among us, things which people in the Tyres and Sidons and Sodoms of our world do not regularly see, If we sit as witnesses of these things and yet harden our hearts with Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin and refuse to repent and believe in Christ ourselves, we only aggravate our condemnation. We only increase our trouble on the day of judgment. And so I plead with you tonight, do not harden your heart against the ways of God's kingdom, be they challenging or joyful. And I plead with you tonight, children... And all of us, do not harden your heart amidst all the evidence you have around you of the mighty power of Christ to save. Turn to him, even tonight, in repentance and faith, and you will never be sorry. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So that was the first item this evening, hard hearts. But then we need to think in the second place about opened hearts. Hearts that have been opened in verses 25, 26, and 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. (coughs) So, how are hearts opened? How do people come to know God? How are the things of God revealed? How is God himself revealed? How do people come to understand the realities of the kingdom? How are hearts opened? Well, it's not that our hearts are open in and of themselves, is it? And it's not that we somehow make them open of our own volition. It's that God, according to our text tonight, God opens the human heart. God reveals the realities of the kingdom. Verse 23, you have hidden these things, and you have revealed them. Christ reveals the Father to those whom he wills, verse 27. Our hearts are open to God, and our hearts are opened to the things of God by God himself. 
The Lord opened Lydia's heart, Acts 16, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And that's the process that Jesus is describing here. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, does that provide somehow an excuse for those whose hearts God does not open, for those whom he chooses, from whom he chooses to hide kingdom realities in verse 25? Are we excused? Well, the previous verses in which Jesus pronounces woe on the hardness of men's hearts make it clear that the answer is no, right? Jesus' words in the previous verses make it clear that God's sovereignty over the opening of hearts does not excuse the hardness of man's unbelief. Else Jesus would not condemn unbelief as he does in verses 16 through 24. The people of Chorazin, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Capernaum, the malcontents in verses 16 through 19 are responsible for their hardness of heart. And so it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus condemns unbelief in verses 16 through 24 and holds responsible those who engage in it. And now in verses 25 through 27, he explains that only God can overcome it. And both are true. Both are true. Each man, woman, boy, and girl is responsible for his or her unbelief. And only God can intervene to rescue him or her out of it. Both are true. Now, we don't fully understand the interplay between those two things. We don't fully understand the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But the Bible clearly teaches both, and this passage tonight clearly teaches both. And so we need to accept both, even if we don't understand how the puzzle pieces all fit together, and we don't. We mustn't, on the one hand, twist the very real emphasis here in verses 25 through 27 on God's sovereignty in opening human hearts into an excuse for the hardness of heart for which Jesus holds men responsible in verses 16 through 24. But on the other hand, we mustn't interpret man's responsibility, which is so clearly taught in verses 16 through 24, as an indication that the next three verses don't actually mean what they so patently say. People are responsible for their unbelief, and at one and the same time, and without contradiction, only God in his sovereignty can bring people to belief. We must believe both. And in this portion of the message, we are particularly noticing the second. We're noticing God's sovereignty. We're noticing that it is God who opens hearts. And as we think along those lines, we need to notice what Jesus says in verses 25 and 26 now about God opening a particular sort of heart, about God being well-pleased, verse 26, to open the hearts of infants, he says, which I take to mean not literal infants, but people who are infants in understanding. The Father was particularly revealing himself, Jesus says, to these sorts of people as Jesus went about and ministered. Listen again to what Jesus says in verses 25 
and 26. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing, well-pleasing in your sight. Now, there are a couple of different ways we can interpret what Jesus means here. On one hand, he may be referring here in verse 25 to people who think themselves wise and intelligent spiritually. People who think themselves wise and intelligent spiritually and comparing them to infants, comparing them to people, in other words, that no one would label as among the spiritually wise and intelligent. So that perhaps what Jesus is saying here is that God had chosen to hide spiritual realities from people who were proud. We could think, for instance, about the Pharisees. And that God had chosen to reveal spiritual realities, rather, to people whom no one would expect to be among the spiritually wise. And if that's what Jesus means, if he's referring to God hiding spiritual realities from the spiritually proud, then alongside this reminder of God's sovereignty to reveal himself to whom he wishes, we also have here in verse 25 another little ringing of the bell of human responsibility. If you're proud, the idea would be you put yourself in a very bad position. So that's one possibility in verse 25, that Jesus is comparing those who think themselves spiritually wise with those who are clearly not. (coughs) Or it could be that Jesus is comparing those who actually are wise and intelligent in terms of this world's learning with people who are patently not wise in this world's learning. In which case, he would be speaking about the same thing here in Matthew 11 that Paul pointed out to the church at Corinth when he reminded them that there were not very many among the social elite in their church. So that's a possibility as well, that Jesus is referring to God's building of his kingdom mostly from the lower castes of society. But either way, you see, it's clear that it is God who reveals himself. God is not known, and spiritual realities are not discerned, verse 25, based on human wisdom or human intelligence, whether genuine human wisdom and intelligence or merely professed wisdom and intelligence. God is not known based on human wisdom or intelligence, whether genuine or professed. God was pleased here in Matthew 11, and God is pleased typically, I think, to reveal himself to infants, to reveal himself to seemingly unlikely characters, to those who do not possess wisdom, in order to demonstrate that it is he who opens hearts, that salvation is from him. As Paul put it to the Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. (coughs) And that's the thing, you see. That's the upshot of understanding that it is 
by his doing, by God's doing, that we're in Christ. This is the upshot of understanding that it is God and not we who opens our hearts. Namely, that we will boast, not in ourselves, but in the one who truly deserves the praise. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A friend was pointing this reality out to me the other day by posing the question, maybe you've pondered it yourself, why have some of us come to faith? Why have some of us come to Christ while our siblings, reared in the same homes and under the sound of the same gospel, have not? Or why have some of our children come to Christ and others, reared in the same home under the sound of the same gospel, have not? Why am I a Christian and he or she is not? Why have I believed and he or she has not? Is it because I and myself was more wise or intelligent, spiritually or otherwise? If so, then my salvation is not actually by grace, is it? And now I have something to boast about. But if it was God, you see, who revealed Christ to me, if it was God himself who opened my eyes and my mind and my heart, if it was God who opened my heart apart from any insight or merit of my own, then my salvation really was a gift. And therefore let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So then we've considered hard hearts, and now we've considered opened hearts And then lastly, wonderfully, we have the privilege of considering invited hearts. Invited hearts in verses 28 through 30. It is God who opens hearts, and God does so through the power of his word and often through marvelous invitations like this one in verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now let's notice a few things briefly here. We've looked at this verse in an extended fashion, or this passage in an extended fashion recently, these last three verses of chapter 11. But let's just notice a few things briefly tonight. First notice who is invited. Who is invited? Namely, the weary and heavy laden. Verse 28. The weary and heavy laden. Is that you? Are you tired spiritually tonight? Are you heavy laden? Are you like Bunyan's pilgrim trudging through your days with a great burden on your back, the great weight of sin pressing down upon you, Jesus invites you, even you, to come to him for rest. And notice that the invitation is for all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. So you see... You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be wise enough, remember. You don't have to deserve it. You don't have to prove anything. You just have to say, I'm weary and heavy laden. I'll come. None of these other qualifiers are in the text, are they? 
It simply says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And so if you are weary and heavy laden, Jesus invites you to come, even tonight, and find rest. And then secondly, in addition to who is invited, I would also have you notice to whom we are invited. To whom? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, he says, to Jesus. So the invitation, if you're weary and heavy laden, is not to take on some new habits that will be more restful. The invitation is not to involve yourself in a new group. Although these things, better habits and a new group, come when you come to Christ. But the invitation is not to them. The invitation is not to a spiritual regimen. The invitation is not even, first of all, to the church. The invitation is to Christ Jesus himself. It is Jesus himself, as we heard from the apostle a few moments ago. It is Jesus himself, Paul said, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And it is he, he himself, who will give us rest. Come to me, he says. If you want wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, if you want righteousness, if you want sanctification, if you want redemption, you come to Christ. And in this text, if you want rest from your weariness and your heavy ladenness, come to me, Jesus says. Have you ever done that? Children, again, I'll ask you. Adults, I ask you as well. Have you ever done that? You're here with us tonight. You're here with Christ's people tonight. But have you ever really gone to Jesus himself? Go to him now and he will give you rest. Yes, I know. It's God who opens hearts. God is sovereign over who comes to Jesus. You can only come to Jesus, John 6, if the Father who sent him draws you. And yet, that's not really the issue that's at hand when we consider the invitation of Jesus tonight, is it? Your responsibility in the face of an invitation like this is not to try and figure out what God is going to do or what God is doing. Your invitation or your responsibility is to do what he's inviting you to do. And I urge you to do it, to come to Jesus and to persuade you to do so Notice what kind of man he is who invites us to come. (coughs) It's true, verse 29, he places on his disciples a yoke. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle, merely granting wishes to those who come to him. He is a master who places on his people a yoke and tells us to learn from him. And yet this master who controls the oxen, this master in whose yoke we place our necks, is gentle and humble in heart, verse 29. His yoke is easy, verse 30, and his burden is light. His commandments, as the Apostle John puts it, are not burdensome. And this is the one to whom the weary and the heavy laden are invited to come. Won't you come to this gentle, humble Jesus? As you mull it, there's one more thing to note here. Not only who is invited and to whom we are invited, but thirdly, the promise of the invitation. 
the promise of the invitation, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. (coughs) Rest from your burdens. Rest from your weariness. Rest from your sinfulness. And notice, rest for your souls. For your souls. Bodily weariness is one thing, isn't it? But weariness of soul, a burden upon the soul, I think many of us would say, is even heavier. And so praise God that his son offers us not just bodily prosperity, though he often grants us that too, but that his son holds out on offer here rest for our souls. Praise God that he invites our hearts to find rest in himself. Have you found it? And if you have, do you continually go to Jesus to find rest? Does your soul return to your rest, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 116? Either way, here is Christ's invitation tonight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.